Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Edge of Sports. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking about a book called Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and An Unprecedented American Dream. It's by Dan Grunfeld. And if you want to hear the story about how a family went from Auschwitz to the National Basketball Association, this is what you want to hear. It's a remarkable interview. I've also got some choice words about Leah Thomas and Brittany Griner. Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards and more. But first, let's talk to Dan Grunfeld. The book is by the grace of the game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and An Unprecedented American Dream. The author is Dan Grunfeld, and we're speaking to him right now. How are you doing, Dan? Doing well, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's an incredible story that your family's been through. Um, As you put it, a multi-generational family epic from Auschwitz to the NBA. Um, if you could, for our audience, can you just get, give a thumbnail of your family's history? Yeah, absolutely. So basketball is kind of the family business. You know, I played at Stanford, played eight years professionally. My dad was a high school basketball All-American from Queens, New York, a college basketball All-American at the University of Tennessee. And then he played nine years in the NBA and was an NBA executive for 30 years. So very well known in the world of sports and the world of basketball. But what's less well known is that my dad, whose name is Ernie Grunfeld, uh, is the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. Mm. And actually, I did a year and a half of research for my book. The research suggests he's the only athlete in the history of the four major American sports leagues whose parents are Holocaust survivors. And so, you know, my grandmother, you'll be happy to know, turns 97 in June. She's doing amazingly well, but she was saved twice in Budapest by Swedish diplomat Raul Wallenberg, considered one of the greatest mm. heroes of the Holocaust. She risked her life and saved other lives. And so, my family has this really big story and basketball kind of changed everything. And so, you know, you mentioned my book is called By the Grace of the Game, you know, because the game of basketball really changed everything for us. Yeah, let's speak about that a little bit. I mean, first and foremost, how familiar with you, were you with your family's history when you were growing up? Because I know for me, 
uh, you know, we, we have similar backgrounds um, other than the basketball All-American part. Uh, we, have, <laughs> we have similar backgrounds and it would be like pulling teeth to get my grandparents who are from the old country, from Eastern Europe, Jewish, lost people during the Holocaust, although they were already here in the United States. Um, but, but like getting them to talk about it was incredibly difficult. How, how conversant was your family home in this history? You often find with Holocaust survivors, it's a binary. Either they don't talk about it or they feel an obligation to do so. And that was, my grandmother was the latter. My grandpa, unfortunately, passed away when I was very young. But yeah, I, I've always been really close with my grandma. And I grew up hearing stories about people who were no longer with us. I knew, you know, kind of what had happened. But as I got older, I learned more, you know, and my grandma lives 25 minutes away from Stanford where I went to college. So I lived with her during the summers. I remember us eating dinner together and I had a red notebook and I would just take notes, you know, on the story, just wanting to learn more. Uh, so she, she really talked about it a lot and continues to, to this day. My dad talks about it far less, you know, cause he was kind of born from the ashes of the Holocaust and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, found basketball and took, took us in different directions. And so I, I heard less about it from him, but definitely my grandmother was always really willing to talk about it. Yeah, as a basketball guy, as I like to consider myself, and as someone who remembers your dad from when I was growing up in New York and you know having a, not just him, but a couple of Jewish ball players on the Knicks at the time was <laughs> kind of a big deal for me. Um, it, it, I believe the other player was named Fenstein or Fenstern. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> blanking on it, but there was another Jewish player on the team. But um, but but I I have no memories of 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 your dad, as you said, not speaking about it a lot. I have no memories of him doing extensive interviews about this or about the family history. Is this a bit of a of a coming out party for the Grunfelds with this book in terms of telling people this history? A little bit. It's nothing. It's not that my dad ever concealed it. You know, he wore number 18 when he played for the Knicks. And number 18 is a symbolic number in Judaism. And, you know, mm -hmm. there have been stories in newspapers written about, you know, his parents parents are Holocaust survivors. But, you know, my book is 300 pages. You know, so it really it really goes into depth about this history. And, you know, my dad, you know, if you've heard him in interviews, he just sounds like a New Yorker because he learned English in Forest Hills, Queens. But he came to the United States not speaking a word of English at the age of nine years old, having never touched a basketball. And then his older brother, uh, who was eight years older than him, was diagnosed with leukemia a few months after they arrived in the States and he passed away within a year. You know, so my dad had this really tough background, fleeing his homeland, you know, the, all the history of the Holocaust. And then he just picked up basketball at the park in Queens, you know, and then he became, like I said, this All-American and this great player. And so basketball took him away from all these really hard things. And he never really has looked back much, particularly not publicly. So, yeah, so my book is it is. It is bringing all these things to light. And, you know, my dad is really proud of me. He's really grateful that I've memorialized this history, but it's hard for him. Yeah, I, I was, that was my next question. It's interesting. I mean, I'm seeing just these parallels with, with my own family about how that, that generation after World War II, um, much, much more kind of like we're, we're looking forward. We're not talking about where we came from and then having to go around, almost around a generation to hear the history. I mean, that, that's, isn't that what it sounds like you did? I mean, you had to go to your, to, to more to your grandmother than, than, than to your dad to really learn the, the learn this. Without a doubt, without a yeah. doubt. And uh, lucky my grandmother is you know, doing so well. She's so sharp. And I, when I did research for my book, I did hundreds of hours of interviews with both my dad and my grandmother, you know, and I transcribed them. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it, it was a lot, but 
you know, my, and my dad did add important color, certainly around his experience as an immigrant, you know, coming to the United States, like I mentioned with that background of not speaking English, never touched a basketball. 10 years later, he won a gold medal for the United States of America. You know, so, so it really is kind of a Cinderella underdog story. So he was very helpful understanding that part of the journey, but less so about the details of the Holocaust. Because listen, he lost, my grandmother lost five siblings and both parents in the Holocaust. And my grandfather lost both his sisters and his parents, right? So my dad lost his whole family. And uh, yeah, yeah that, was, that was something that my grandmother was really able to shine a light on for us. No, I mean, the book is incredibly moving. What for you was the toughest part to excavate and put down on the page, knowing it would go out to the public? What was the toughest part for you? You know, a lot of people have asked me that. And, you know, my book, it, my family story kind of, it's the complete range of the human experience. You know, there's joy, there's pain, there's tragedy, there's triumph. And so that's the story. I wanted to reflect those things. So, you know, there were parts that I wrote that I loved writing. You know, my dad and probably finding basketball and other really happy moments there were such sad moments too. And for me, the hardest one was about my uncle's passing, mm. you know, cause for, cause from, and I'm named after my uncle, which I'm very honest about in the book, the obligation that I feel from that and uh, you know, how much I want to honor him and honor, you know, his memory. And so for my grandparents to survive the Holocaust, to get to America and have a chance at a better life, but then for their oldest son to pass and for my dad to lose his hero. And, you know, from the book, what my dad called my uncle in Hungarian, their native language, translates in English to my king. You know, imagine that, right? A little brother calling his older brother my king. That's how much he loved my uncle and, and he passed. And so, you know, listen, there were many tears shed writing, the, writing that part, reading it afterwards. I've had so many people from around the world reach out to me about the book. And that part, you know, comes up a lot because it's, it's very hard. But I don't think if my dad would have experienced that level of heartbreak and tragedy, he would have fl flown so far so fast with the game of basketball. It really took him away from all of it. Mm. Now, has uh, grandma seen the book yet? Oh, absolutely. Actually, which was amazing. I spoke to her, her community. You know, she lives in a retirement community in the Bay Area, and they had me for a presentation on Zoom uh, about a month ago. And so imagine the pride, right, for me to be able to talk to the community and my grandma, you know, we talk every day. We're so close. And she always says, Hey, I was, you know, I saw my friend, she's reading your book. She loves it. You know? So that's, that's really, it's such a thrill to me. And of course she, she's read it and, you know, also hard for her, but she always said to me growing up and still says, you know, her fear is that no one will know her family members even existed. You know, they were sent to Auschwitz and never heard from again. So I can tell her, Hey, their stories live forever now in this book, you know? So that's, that's really special. Let's talk about basketball, because in the book, you write about basketball having the power to heal. Can you speak about the role that basketball played in not just the healing of the Grunfelds, but also in, you know, acculturation in coming to the United States and feeling at home here? Like what, what did basketball mean, not just for your father, but for the family as your father was able to find success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it meant so much. That's what the book, By the Grace of the Game. I mean, and that really is, it, it was that powerful for us. And so my dad, you know, when he lost his brother, again, he was made fun of when he got to America because he didn't speak English. You know, here's a kid from Romania, son of Holocaust survivors, doesn't speak the language, loses his older brother. He was just looking for something, looking for meaning, looking for belonging. As he says it, he was just looking for friends. You know, what, what kid, kids want to belong. So he went to the park in Queens, New York to make friends, learn English, heal from that loss. And he started playing basketball. And so he says, hey, man, if you could play ball in the neighborhood, you made friends. And the better you were, the more friends you had. 
So I can say mm-hmm. to him, well, you must've made a lot of friends you know, because he was, he was rare. It just clicked for him. You know, the game, the game really made sense. And so, yeah. And, and for my grandparents to see their son, you know, after losing their oldest son, to see their younger son find this game. And, and, you know, I write in the book that my grandparents never saw my dad play basketball until he was a junior in high school, mm-hmm. which is amazing. You know, for me growing up, my parents were at every game. My sister was supporting me. They didn't know. They opened up a fabric store in the Bronx and they just had to work to build a new life. And they got a call at their store from my dad's high school coach saying, hey, you should see this kid play, you know. And then a year later, he's an All-American. Then he's an All-American in college and a gold medalist and the 11th pick in the NBA draft, you know. So, again, for the game has just done done everything for us and changed, changed the trajectory of my family. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable story. Um, I, I almost want to jump ahead and ask you about the movie rights. Uh, because <laughs> We're talking about it. We're talking about it. Are you really? Yeah, we, we've had people reach out, which is amazing. And, you know, it's, I, I wrote this book because it's in my heart. Like this is what has never been a commercial endeavor for me. And I don't think mm-hmm. you can write a book this deep and personal if you have any, any type of you know, goals in mind, aside from just telling a really important story. But now that it's out there, like for me to spread it in any way I can is my dream. And so, yeah, I've had people reach out about the movie, which is so awesome. And we're talking about it. And so, yeah, it's, it's been it's been incredible the the uh, the response and you know what I think it is man we all want something to believe in you know and when you see a family who can survive the Holocaust who can come to America looking for a better life lose a son but still stay positive stay together stay hopeful and and you know make something of themselves it's it's you know a story we can all relate to and believe in yeah I mean what was it like for your father uh, coming to this country not speaking English finding that he had skills with basketball. And then attempting to go from Queens to Knoxville, Tennessee. I mean, that to me, I, I've always, I, I've wondered that. And frankly, I've wondered the, the same thing about the other half of the Bernie and Ernie True, True <laughs> duo as well. Bernard King coming from New York. I mean, going to Knoxville, but the, the cultural uh, integration factor coming from New York. Um, has, has your father ever explained to you how he was able to pull that off? A- absolutely. So back then in the 70s, a lot of the great players, high school players from New York City went down south. You know, they called it the pipeline to the south. You know, the Big East right. wasn't the conference that it would become. So it was it was fairly common. You know, Knoxville is East Tennessee, so it's not that far from New York. And I think, you know, my dad had an opportunity to play right away. The coaching staff basically moved to New York City to, to recruit him. You know, they, they did everything they could. And I write about some of those stories in the book of them, you know, coming to my grandparents' fabric store, showing up at the apartment. Something I learned through the research process is the Tennessee coaching staff said, listen, we don't think that Ernie cares that much about the Jewish community in Knoxville, but his parents do. So they had the Jewish community recruit my grandparents. They had the, the people from the Hillel and the Jewish deli. You know, they, they were really thoughtful about it. And my dad felt comfortable there. And as you said, a, a year later, Bernard King, you know, if he, Bernard from Brooklyn, my dad from Queens, you know, Bernard yeah. came down as well. And yeah, Ernie and Bernie show, one of the greatest duos in college basketball history. I said Bernie and Ernie, and you you got it right with Ernie and Bernie, right? Well, listen, it's funny because they were both incredible college players. They averaged 25 points per game each in the same season, which is just incredible. And since my dad's older in Knoxville, it was called the Ernie and Bernie show. But once Mm -hmm. they got to the pros, Bernard led the NBA in scoring. He became a Hall of Famer. And my dad was a role player. So, you know, after after Knoxville, a lot of people will call it the Bernie and Ernie show just because Bernard was such an amazing NBA player. Mm. Has the experience of writing this book changed 
the way you feel your own relationship is to the, to the Holocaust and to that generation of survivors? I mean, as it, cause I mean, once I'm projecting so much of myself onto you with each and every one of these questions. So I apologize for that. No. But, but this idea of it turning from say something like, I don't want to use the word burden, but a weight of that family history to something that you can then put your arms around and speak about and, and actually rejoice in the aspect of survival that your family was able to come out of? Yeah, it, it's an awesome question. And I've never had it phrased to me quite that way. So I really appreciate it. So the answer is, yes, it has changed things because this history always really, I, I carried it, I felt it, it weighed on me. You probably feel the same way, you know, because we have these similar backgrounds. They talk about intergenerational trauma and, and I just always felt it. And that's why I wrote this book. That's why I cared enough to spend five plus years telling this story, transmitting the history. But now that it's out there in the world, yeah, there has been a little bit of a switch because I'm, I'm able to be proactive about it. You know, so whereas in the past, I would tell my friends some of my grandmother's experiences and I, you know, I've done a lot of writing. So I would write articles about, you know, treating people fairly because those themes mattered so much to me. But now I have a book that talks about this history. And, you know, I, I gave a presentation to the, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. through Yad Vashem, you know, so I'm now involved with these organizations and I'm able to speak about these topics. So there has been a little bit of a shift now where some of that weight is lifted just because it always like weighed me down. And now I'm able to, to talk about it, you know, to be, to be kind of front and center about the history. Cause it does, it, it, it matters so much. I mean, my, you know, I always say about the Holocaust, it seems like an abstraction in history, 6 million Jews and millions more killed, but it wasn't that long ago and it wasn't that far away. That's right. the reality. And, you know, all we need to do is turn on our news today and see what human beings are capable of, right. And how, how we can treat each other. And so my, my grandma was there. You know, the people she loved the most in the world, they, they were killed. So for me to be able to, yeah, to talk about it publicly and to kind of relate the, these stories, it, it means the world. Mm. Has your dad ever, ever made the trip uh, back to Hungary, back to Europe, back to, back, back to the, old, the old country? I mean, it, it's tough because I know there's the, the old country, as my grandparents knew it, is no longer there. I mean, entire shtetls wiped out. Yep. Uh, no, no, no mention of them, but has, has your dad ever been able to make that journey back? He hasn't been back to Romania. You know, they left Romania, you know, they fled as, as refugees, you know, so it wasn't, wasn't a happy life there, you know, under communism. Although for him as a young boy, he didn't know any better. He had a loving family. So, cause I asked him for the book, I was like, what was it like to grow up so poor? And he said, I didn't grow up poor. You know, he didn't know anything else, you know, which is really interesting. And I learned so much about his childhood experience. But, you know, for my grandparents, the brutality of communism, the things that they faced, they had friends who were jailed, tortured, killed just for speaking out against the government, you know, really hard. So it, it wasn't a, a happy, a happy experience. So my dad hasn't been back to Romania, but he has been to Hungary. And as you know, Hungary, you know, they were my dad's from Transylvania on the border of Romania yes. and Hungary. So the food is Hungarian. The language is Hungarian. And uh, my dad, when he was playing in the NBA, went to Budapest through, through the league and did a basketball clinic in Hungarian. You know, so, so his teammates are like, what is Ernie talking about? Because you know, he just sounds like a New Yorker, but yeah. his, you know, his native language is Hungarian. Actually, when he got to the United States as a kid, he spoke fluent Hungarian, Romanian, and Italian. Not a word of English, right? So this is kind of like the transformation. Like, oh, here's this New York basketball legend who plays for the Knicks. Oh, but now he's doing a, you know, a camp, a clinic in Hungarian. So he has been back to kind of Europe, a little bit Eastern Europe, but not Romania. 
Mm. Did you ever think when you were at Stanford playing ball that this would be what you'd be doing uh, 15 years after the fact? Is this what you saw yourself doing, taking your family's history, putting it, putting it in book form, going out there, speaking about a book you wrote about the Grunfelds? Is that, was that ever a conception of something you would do? Not in college, although I did work on a family history project at Stanford as an undergrad where I wrote like a 15 to 20 page version of my family story. And, and I remember the teacher's response was like, wow, that's, you know, it was remarkable, right? And for me, I was just like, hey, this is the story. You know, like, yeah, my dad played hoops. He, but, you know, when you're young and you're doing other things, you don't quite get it. But as I got older, learned more about it, my writing developed, I was doing a lot of it. I remember telling my wife, you know, man, I, this is the story I want to tell, you know, and then but I needed some time and some space. And I retired from my professional career uh, in 2014 and I went to business school and then I had some space in my life. And I, again, remember looking at my wife being like, now's the time, you know? So when I was like an 18, 20 year old kid at Stanford, I, I wouldn't have known that I would tell it. It meant, it meant so much to me. You know, I, I asked my grandmother questions about it. I asked my dad about his experiences, but I never would have told you that, oh, I'm going to write it in book form. But as I got older, my joy of writing, you know, the love of writing developed. Yeah, this, this is the big one. So it's one I always wanted to tell. Wow. I mean, I, I know I know this book is the focus and I'm sure it will be for some time and it's so deeply personal, but do, do you have ideas about a follow-up project? You know, I love to write. And I was like, writing is in you. You know, it's like, if, if it's in you, you can't stop doing it. And I've always been that way. Even when I was a kid, I'd come home from basketball practice and I would write stories and poems and all these things. Mm. So I love to write. I do plan on writing another book in the future, but there'll never be another one like this. You know, this is essentially my soul on a page. You know, it doesn't only recount my family's story. I tell my own, you know, because I grew up so differently. I was born under so much privilege, right? Outside of New York City, my dad was a player for the New York Knicks and the general manager of the team. I had opportunities and resources and all these things, but I carried this history that no one knew about that mattered so much to me, you know? So my journey with basketball too, I, I talk about in depth in the book. And so, yeah, for so many reasons, this book is my soul on a page and uh, I'm just so grateful to have it out there to speak about it. But down the road, I would like to write more because I just love doing it. I mean, it reads like it's your soul on the page. Thank I mean, you. It, every page pops. I, I can't recommend this to people enough, but it's, it's, it, it's moving too. It's like, I'm, you know, I, I sometimes describe books as you've got like, you know, the bathroom books and then the books you actually have to sit down and sit with. <laughs> right. You know, this is a sit with like book. Yeah. So, and it's, and it's not, not to say there aren't amazing bathroom books. It's not a derisive term. Yeah. 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 The kind of the light reading or the kind of reading that, that you really just need to sit with and think about. And this is to me definitely in that second category. Um, Thank you know, you it's, it's like, Den, it's like Denzel Washington movies. You got man on fire and then you've got the more serious stuff like fences. And you know, <laughs> it's not to say one's better than the other, but it's a different type of experience. No doubt, man. I, you know, my goal with the book was to be really open and honest. You know, I, there, I always felt like there was a truth to this story, my family's truth and my own, and I just wanted to convey it. You know, and so, yeah, I, it goes deep. You, you'll likely cry, but you'll also likely laugh. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And I always learned that from my grandmother. That's what life is. And that's what my family story has been, a great tragedy, but incredible triumph. And those mm -hmm. things live alongside each other. So for my book, yeah, there's darkness, but there's more light. You know, ultimately, it's inspirational, it's hopeful. And, you know, we want to, we want to smile, we want to laugh, we want to enjoy and, and you do that in the book, but you also feel the other side of life, which is, you know, the hardships and the sadness. And so I wanted to 
kind of to reflect the, the totality of the human experience. Well, you know, if if survival and thriving is the best revenge, it's like your grandma should be on a postage stamp. <laughs> she she's one of a kind. I mean, she is as amazing as she seems in the book. She is that person. And you know, I talk to young folks in schools, and sometimes I ask, "Hey, who here knows a Holocaust survivor?" And sometimes no hands go up. You know, depending on the demographics, and I can proudly say read my book you'll know one you know because mm -hmm. you'll, you'll you'll know my grandmother you'll see what the human spirit is capable of and i mentioned like we can turn on the news today and see what the human spirit is capable mm -hmm. of seeing people fighting for their lives fighting for their neighbors and uh my grandma was doing that you know during world war ii during the holocaust and so she just still remains like the most hopeful the most amazing person and so to tell her story my dad's story and even a little bit of my own it's just been really the great honor of my life Awesome. I mean, is there anything else about the book you'd like to share? Anything I didn't ask you? Anything that you think uh, you want people to know? One thing I'll say is I, I always drew so much inspiration from my family story. You know, so you know, I went to Stanford, but I wanted to play at Stanford since I was in seventh grade, right? Which is a big dream for someone like me. It was a long shot, but it happened through a combination of luck, timing, skill, whatever it was. But I kind of had the luxury to dream big because I had seen what my grandparents overcame and saw what my dad overcame. And so my hope with this book is that people will read the story and they'll get a similar sense of inspiration from it. You know, cause like I said, there's hard things, but it's about hope, you know, and it's about what's possible. And so, yeah, I hope that the inspiration that I always felt is kind of transmitted to readers when they, when they pick up this book. Amazing. The book is by the grace of the game, the Holocaust, a basketball legacy and an unprecedented, American dream. That's a big title and the book lives up to it on <laughs> yeah, every page. Thank you. Uh, but before I let you go though, Dan, one of the things we always ask people, particularly authors, when we talk to them on the show, is what music inspired you as you were working on it? Was it music that just helped you work? You know, was it instrumental stuff? Was it maybe music from the old country? What was the music that animated you as you were working on this project? I just have to tell you, that's one of the best questions anyone has ever asked me. So like, kudos to you, seriously, about this project. I've done so many interviews. No one has asked me that. And I love that question. Uh, I love music. You know, it's so inspirational. I like the music I listened to growing up playing hoops to get like psych, like Eminem and all these things. Like there was some of that. But I'll tell you the real music that like connected me with this project I was, as I was going through it. It's the soundtrack to Hamilton. Mm. It's Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda, the Hamilton soundtrack. because you know, like the whole, that whole story of being an upstart of coming to America and kind of the, the risk that Lin-Manuel Miranda himself had to take to write that story the way he did and to tell it. I remember like listening to that and be like, dude, like learn from this, like do it. Like, cause you know, this is a big story for me. And so it took a lot to just day after day, year after year, continue to tell it. And it was that, that soundtrack I would listen to and just be like, dude, keep pushing, keep pushing. So, uh, by the way, it's also just incredible music and like the the one of the best shows. I mean, I love I love shows and you know Hamilton is is just the best. But uh, yeah, that music really was something that uh, I listened to a lot over this process. Well, it's difficult to not think of the Grunfeld family over eighty years and not think of a world turned upside down. <laughs> nice um, rap. No, it's the, yeah. it's the truth. It, no, it's it's the truth, man. So that that uh, I owe a lot to that soundtrack. Excellent. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Really do appreciate it. You got it. It was fun, man. Thank you. Awesome. We'll be back right after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. 
We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. Brittany Griner is in a Russian jail awaiting a May trial that could send her to prison for a decade on hashish oil possession charges. That one of the most prominent basketball players on earth has become a political prisoner as U.S.-Russia relations disintegrate should be catnip for an opposition party. That fictional opposition party would be demanding information about Griner's safety, decrying the Biden administration's ineffectualness at bringing her home, and keeping her name in the headlines to increase pressure on Putin to not treat her like a bargaining chip. But the GOP has kept quiet, and anyone who thinks it's doing so in accordance with the wishes of Griner's wife for privacy is huffing glue. Brittany Griner is a six foot nine black queer woman, someone whose identity the GOP seems to only know how to demonize. She also plays for the WNBA, which the GOP probably fears more than Biden himself given the player's history of tilting the entire U.S. Senate in 2020 by backing the Reverend Raphael Warnock in his race against Republican white nationalist and WNBA franchise owner Kelly Loeffler. Griner's identity, her very personhood, has earned her nothing but silence. Yet Republicans' quietude is not because they are too busy with Supreme Court hearings. They actually are keeping a remarkably close eye on women's sports just not on Griner. Their focus is on swimmer Leah Thomas, a transgender woman and most recently an NCAA champion. Misgendering Thomas and treating her success as a sign of the apocalypse has become a national obsession for both the GOP and a sector of liberal cisgender women willing to align with the darkest corners of our politics in order to keep trans people off the playing field. Even though Thomas competed according to NCAA guidelines for trans athletes, even though Thomas's victory in the 500 freestyle did not translate to the other races in which she competed, even though she has the support of her team, she was going to somehow end women's sports as we know them. There is zero evidence that trans women are anything more than barely visible in the world of women's sports. Yet the GOP has used Thomas's success as an occasion for moral panic as 11 states have signed legislation banning trans kids from playing on teams under the banner of Save Our Girls or Save Girls Sports. There are more than 34 other bills out there, according to Trans Hall of Fame triathlete Chris Mosier. This is unspeakably cruel and has nothing to do with saving women's sports. A photo of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, surrounded by a sea of young white girls as she signed her ban gave the game away and was a revolting reminder of the ways that the clarion call to protect cisgender white womanhood has been used historically as an excuse for violence against marginalized populations. Anti-trans rhetoric and white nationalist movements have always walked arm in arm, and this photo seemed to celebrate that with less of a dog whistle than a foghorn. 
Suffice it to say, no one who looks like Brittany Griner was anywhere to be found near the governor's desk. Make no mistake about it. These laws are about attacking the very existence of trans identity and the ability for trans people to be visible and frankly, even to exist in public spaces. To remove the opportunity of fun, play, and teamwork from trans kids is a form of cruelty, which is why thugs like Ron DeSantis are all in on this assault. Trans kids are already trying to find a place in a hostile world. These bills only turn up the hostility. There have been some profiles in courage, although courage in this context could also be called common sense and feels less like a celebration than a glass of water in the desert. The Republican governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, in vetoing a trans sports ban, exposed what a sham this all is and what the true stakes happen to be. He pointed out that out of 75,000 kids playing high school sports in Utah, only four are transgender and only one is a trans girl. He also said, I don't understand what they are going through or why they feel the way they do, but I want them to live. And all the research shows that even a little acceptance and connection can reduce suicidality significantly. It must be noted that Cox said more in defense of trans kids than most Democrats ever do. Their lack of a strategy to stand with trans people goes against Biden's election promises and is shameful. As for the GOP, the commonality between Griner and Thomas is that Republicans reject them both out of hand, ignoring the plight of one and howling to the moon about the other. The Democrats have largely chosen silence, which exacts its own cost, making people feel self-conscious, shamed, or scared about holding their names up in solidarity. But it's the GOP that has decided to tear Thomas's identity apart while whistling past Griner's peril. We must fight for a different framework in both these cases and show Leah Thomas support while raising Brittany Griner's name to the light. The GOP wants them both erased. That's not going to happen. No matter how many children DeSantis and friends want to stomp on in the name of bigotry, division, and political aspiration. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award goes to teams that have inspired me this March Madness, like the women from South Carolina and Aaliyah Boston, or the Creighton women's team, which is going on an unprecedented run as of this recording. On the men's side, of course, St. Peter's out of Jersey City. Shout out to Shaheen Holloway. And of course, North Carolina, Hubert Davis, making a terrific run in the tourney. Good for them. But, you know, by the time y'all are listening to this, for all I know, half these teams would have lost, half these teams could have won. We don't know what things are going to shake out by the time y'all hear this. That's the problem with recording over the weekend where we go from the Sweet 16 
to the Final Four and whistle right past the Elite Eight. So this is where we're at. I think instead I'm just going to say, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. To the NCAA because you're disgusting. You're a multi-billion dollar nonprofit that exists for the sole purpose of stealing black wealth. That's you. But you know what? I still hope as folks are listening to this that Creighton and St. Peter's can continue their Cinderella runs because in that you have what's beautiful about sports, even though the backdrop of it is kind of what makes us sick about sports. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much, Dan Grunfeld. Thank you to the producer of this podcast, Dave Tickaboo. Thank you to everybody who's out there listening. Please, please mask up. I don't care what they're saying. Mask up. Get your vax. Stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.